Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about how poor and working people are fighting back against the onslaught against housing here in the United States. Also going to be talking about the struggle against the proposed cop city in Atlanta. And it's Friday, which means we're having our weekly segment discussing sports, struggle and politics. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. People are becoming more aware of the importance of housing injustice as the dual crises of COVID-19 and climate change converge and the existing original pandemic of capitalism has shown to be unwilling, not unable, but unwilling to provide any relief. Homelessness that was already shamefully high in this country was made worse by the pandemic as landlords have tried their best to continue to evict people who fell behind on their rent because of this very rich government's refusal to provide for people from the beginning of the pandemic, exposing more people to unsanitary and unsafe conditions on the street. Cities could have responded better, but many have been derelict in their responses, having a glut of empty housing units that they could have easily put people in. But they refused to because nobody would have made any money off of doing that. Short of just housing people, some cities like Las Vegas have done things like painting lines on parking lots for the homeless to sleep socially distanced after a large shelter had to be closed due to a resident testing positive for COVID-19. D.C. and some other cities have installed mobile hand-washing stations and increased the number of portable bathrooms near tent encampments, but they still clear out those tent encampments here in D.C., confiscating or destroying people's belongings and displacing them from where they had settled to a less visible location where the rich and the tourists aren't as likely to see them. Santa Clara, California, built more shelters for homeless populations. They just did it. That was a good thing, to ease overcrowding and make it easier for social distancing inside, but it's a temporary solution. Cincinnati housed people in empty convention centers, and California and New York housed people in empty hotel rooms. But regardless of what these cities have done, the measures are insufficient for the needs for housing that existed before the COVID-19 pandemic and will continue to exist after. So rather than ask what some cities will do about it, some organizations have taken things into their own hands, reclaiming abandoned and sometimes derelict properties from these cities to provide not just shelter for homeless families, but safety from the elements and COVID-19 and basic human dignity. We talked about this in 2019 with representatives from Moms for Housing in Oakland, California, homeless mothers who occupied a vacant house in their neighborhood to protest the housing shortage fueled by private property developers and gentrification. Their action and ultimate victory expanded housing activism across Oakland. But other groups have been fighting to reclaim housing in cities and other places in the country. Philadelphia is one of those cities where the persistent crisis of economic oppression has fueled decades of housing activism that has intensified since the pandemic began. 
through vacant property, reclamation, and direct legal action against government agencies that are supposed to provide for everyone to have decent housing. The struggle for housing is more important today than ever before because climate change is once again exposing the danger to human life that insufficient housing presents. While parts of Philadelphia saw unprecedented flooding in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, nearby New York City did as well with the additional horror of several dead, seemingly because they couldn't escape illegal basement apartments, usually the housing of last resort in the incredibly expensive city for far too many poor people, mostly immigrants. Had this not happened, Would we be having a conversation in 2021 about illegal apartments being rented to poor people, to immigrants who can easily be exploited into renting a death trap to live in? Had this pandemic not happened, would we be having these discussions about needing to find permanent solutions for homelessness and paying attention to all the abandoned housing in neighborhoods where there are also homeless people and why that makes no sense? I don't think we would be. So something good, something better just may come out of all of this chaos and misery that all converge to expose the profit-driven death cult that this system really is. Meanwhile, the Chinese government placed a cap on the cost of renting in cities, not allowing the rents to rise more than 5% a year, controlling rents and providing more affordable housing. President Xi Jinping's pledge to narrow wealth disparities with the goal of achieving common prosperity has put the plight of low-income households and individuals at the forefront of policymaking. But here we are in the U.S. having to fight for the right to housing, which is a human right, just like we have to fight for the right to clean air, clean water, and because the plight of the poor and working class in this country is not ever at the forefront of anything other than how the capitalists can squeeze more money out of our exploitation. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We are now happy to be joined by Sherry Hunkler, National Coordinator for the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign. Sherry, thanks so much for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Sherry, we're really happy to have you here because there is some really important action going on in Philadelphia, especially, I think, in light of the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, the flooding that occurred in Philadelphia and New York, and the action centered around housing that your organization is doing, I think is critically important right now. The Poor People's Army has taken over more than 30 abandoned houses that were owned by the federal government or the city of Philadelphia. And your organization is currently in federal court with lawsuits against the Department of Housing and Urban Development. What is the lawsuit about in relation to, you know, housing justice for poor and homeless people, uh, Sherry, and how does it connect to the issue around housing, especially uh, with climate change and climate crisis being uh, obviously a housing issue? Well, we know um, over time, uh, most of Philadelphia will be underwater 
Um, and we're watching what's happening um, across the country and across the world. Um, people are becoming climate refugees. And all of this is caused as a result of the corporations. Um, before the actual flooding uh, occurred here in Philadelphia, we had another kind of tsunami, which is in January, 10 million people were unable to pay rent. And, um, you know, the, the wealthy have been uh, gentrifying all of Philadelphia and every other major urban area in this country, making it absolutely unaffordable for anybody to live anywhere. So um, we are suing uh, the federal government um, for uh, denying uh, people a right to housing in this country. Definitely. And, you know, Sherry, I was struck to see that according to the Philadelphia Housing Authority, that the average time for people to receive public housing is is around 13 years. I mean, that, that, that's incredible to me. And I mean, you know, it, it's just clear that this is the housing issue in places like Philadelphia. And we definitely see similar trends across the country. A longstanding thing before the pandemic and then the sort of double whammy, if you will, this sort of dual crises of the pandemic and now the flooding seems to have further exacerbated the problem. So, I mean, how do you situate what we're seeing in terms of the housing issue in uh, Philadelphia currently with what we've seen in that city historically? Well, I mean, historically, uh, we can go back all the way to W.E.D. DuBose, um, who talked about the land grabs, uh, particularly in North Philadelphia, which is now called Templetown, um, one of the largest um, uh, speculators and uh, you know, a uh, person that's re responsible for major dislocation is, um, is here in Philadelphia. And um, the reason that we have taken over abandoned properties owned by the federal government, which is us, is because in Philadelphia, there's 10 abandoned properties for every homeless family. So this idea that we want to end homelessness is a bunch of hogwash um, because if we wanted to end homelessness in Philadelphia, we would. Um, we've also seen that the land bank has now begun to turn into uh, a land grab as well. Uh, at the 12th hour, they turned the land bank into um, making sure that there was first councilmatic prerogative. So that, you know, if a council person is um, cozy with a developer or a speculator, um, they can go against the entire community when it comes to what should, you know, the various different properties be used for. So um, by any means necessary, um, we're taking a page from history and building our new underground railroad and housing every single person that comes to us. So we have elderly, we have disabled, um, we have families that have lost their homes um, as a result of the flood. We have families that have lost their homes uh, due to house fires. Um, the other day we had somebody that was referred to us from the Red Cross. Um, 
but we will not stop until uh, we house every single person in Philadelphia and are teaching people across the country. That is really incredibly impressive, Sherry, especially since you said something I, I would like for you to expand upon a little bit in relation to the lawsuit um, against the housing and urban development. You said the federal government is us. And in your lawsuit, uh, you, you say that the defendants, HUD's actions and inactions have violated several key rights that citizens are supposed to have under existing legislation that's supposed to provide the right to housing and other rights to people that the lawsuit is claiming that HUD is actually violating. So can you can you expand on that a little bit and explain, you know, how you see HUD violating the rights of people through these existing legislations by not providing housing to people? Well, um, you know, uh, Philadelphia is one of the areas that some of the agencies um, receive the most amount of money from housing and urban development and um, 10% of all HUD properties are supposed to be first allocated um, to poor and homeless people. Um, but what's happened over the years is those properties have been eaten up by what we call the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, and the, uh, the sheriff's office in Philadelphia has historically um, been used as a slush fund uh, for politicians to get access to uh, properties um, either that are owned by housing and urban development, the Philadelphia Housing Authority, um, or the city. Uh, and these properties have been doled out to different political alignments in the city as opposed to being used to uh, house the most oppressed. Um, Right now, we have uh, Liberty Resources, which is the largest disability organization in the country that is working on an amicus brief uh, to add to our lawsuit um, because there's literally uh, hundreds of people that have serious disabilities um, that also can't get access to housing in Philadelphia uh, either. Uh, we had um, a blind woman yesterday um, that we're desperately trying to find some place for her to live. Um, but basically what it comes down to is there's, you know, an absolute misappropriation of funds. Um, you know, many of the folks that were uh, living on the parkway where commitments were made to um, uh, put these families uh, into, um, you know, uh, they, they supposedly won all these properties by housing and urban development. And what ended up happening is that we're having to assist uh, many of these families because the city went back on their commitment to house these families. Um, but uh, again, uh, you know, under, uh, uh, you know, under fair, the Fair Housing Act, um, families have not been housed. Um, there's a direct correlation between um, uh, land grabs, racial discrimination, redlining, uh, the displacement of um, 
people in Philadelphia um, with their fight to try and get some housing. And uh, as you mentioned, people shouldn't have to wait until um, their grandparents um, and their kids are grown and gone uh, to be able to have um, access to uh, public housing uh, here in the Philadelphia area. So we're, we're suing under the Fair Housing Act. We're suing under um, the Religious Freedom Act. We're suing um, under uh, discrimination. Um, we're suing, um, uh, you know, under a lack of access uh, for families that have uh, disabilities. Um, you name it, and um, we're hoping that people will spread the word. Uh, we know that people are hurting all over the place, um, but if we let them continue to get away with not housing people in this country, and when they can build luxury units overnight, um, we're really in trouble as a society. Definitely, and I think that's why it's so important, Sherry, when we see poor working and oppressed people sort of organizing to really take what should be a human right, which is housing. And I was hoping you could tell us some more about this tactic of uh, occupying uh, abandoned houses and uh, how that factors into an organizing strategy. I feel like this is something that we've seen people do throughout the years because, I mean, I know here in D.C., and this is also true in the United States, is that there, there, you know, there's far more empty housing than there are you know, homeless people or people in need of housing. And I don't know if that's the case in Philadelphia, but, but I was hoping you could sort of help us situate this tactic of occupying these houses within this broader struggle for housing itself. Um, absolutely. Uh, 30-some years ago, um, myself and um, some others were, uh, you know, some of the pioneers around housing takeovers. I'm a formerly homeless mother and I couldn't get into uh, a shelter. And the car I was living in at the time with my nine-year-old son had been a band, um, had been hit um, by a drunk driver. And so um, because we couldn't get into the shelters, we took over a house um, and I've been doing it for 30 some years now and teaching people across the country. I've never seen anything as bad as it is now. Um, this is like the Great Depression. And um, in every, we have a group of cartographers um, under Elsa Noderman, um, who's a researcher and a cartographer. Um, has mapped out every single location across the entire U.S. and has found in every single um, city across this country there's more abandoned properties than there are homeless people. In Philadelphia, there's 10 abandoned properties for every homeless person. And in Detroit, Michigan, there's 50 abandoned properties for each homeless person. So... Um, what we do is um, we, you know, we've developed this new underground railroad with um, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, um, you name it. Many of the, these folks are unionized. Um, they've stepped forward to make a moral decision that this is wrong to have men, women and children on the streets of our country. Um, and so. 
Um, we identify uh, a safe, clean property. We go in, we fix it up. Um, most of the properties we can pretty much uh, flip uh, for two hundred dollars, um, and the the family goes into the property, and we set up a support system to um, watch out for them um, and assist them in rebuilding their lives. And they sign um, papers uh, saying that they agree to not um, uh, engage and have any, you know, drugs or, or alcohol or violence or anything like that while they're in the properties and that they'll um, participate in helping to build uh, the movement to end poverty and homelessness in this country. And so they participate in uh, the political education and our boot camps. Um, they turn their houses into depots um, in which they do food distribution and help their neighbors solve um, problems around uh, the utilities um, that they might be having or assist uh, in the wintertime in shoveling snow or um, get clothes out of their house um, and distribute them to their neighbors. So um, we really think that this is um, uh, a movement that's going to, you know, really set fire uh, um, in the years to come um, only out of necessity. Um, you know, we're hoping that um, we can add to the 2,000 signatures that we have of people supporting us for um, the our, our petition uh, to sue housing and urban development. Um, and we need more and more people from across the country uh, to get on board and uh, support us in our efforts um, to really create a people's-centered human rights agenda in this country um, and to demand that housing be a human right. And, you know, Sherry, there is data in Philadelphia about the positive impact that providing housing has on communities that have been traditionally redlined, that are usually targeted and, and, and you know, characterized as, quote unquote, high crime areas. Because, you know, a, a study from a program in the late 90s where $20,000 grants were provided to some homes in neighborhoods that were primarily Black and Latino who had been uh, redlined and suffered from decay and neglect and, you know, were clearly uh, the victims of discrimination, the repairs that that money were able to complete, the block that those homes were in experienced 22 percent less crime overall, 22 percent fewer homicides than they likely would have if the repairs had not been done. And the people who studied this program came to the conclusion that making intentional investments in communities that have undergone years of neglect could start to reverse some trends in crime and other issues. And they say that because for individuals who live in poor housing, they deal with loss of sleep, medical issues like asthma and high stress levels, and that combating those stressors and easing those economic burdens could prevent some of the 
physical manifestations that they cause, like crime. How, Sherry, do you see being able to expand this program, also being able to turn around the narrative about the people who live in these neighborhoods, about these neighborhoods, about homeless people and this narrative of, you know, high crime areas, but actually using this as a a way to really, as you said, create people-centered human rights as a focal point for housing justice in this country? Well, I think um, uh, one of the most important things that we can do is give a voice to the actual people that are impacted by these issues. Um, And so we've been strong advocates and having poor and homeless people speak for themselves uh, as opposed to having somebody, you know, speak for us. Um, And that's incredibly important because, um, you know, it erases the stereotypes um, that everybody uh, is on drugs. They don't have work ethics. um, They don't care about what's happening in this country. They don't take care of their children. And actually, we find the absolute opposite. Um, We find um, the most, uh, hardworking, uh, individuals, cause it's a lot of work to be poor. It's a lot of work to be homeless. We have a member, her name was Elizabeth Ortiz and she went on a struggle, won a property. We won her a property. Um, she got a section eight certificate, moved into her property, was living there for many years Um, and they had her move out of her public housing, um, while they made some repairs. Um, she came back to the property. They didn't, um, secure the roof and, uh, it flooded in her house. She lost everything. Um, so she's, um, they, they tried to, uh, say that they were going to give her a thousand dollars, um, And um, they have yet to make the repairs. This happened last October. Um, And, and, you know, of course, people know how the the rain has been recently in Philadelphia. Um, She has lost everything in her house. Now she's dealing with the bureaucracy of COVID um, in which she can't locate anybody. just yesterday, we were able to secure an attorney for her from community legal services. But just multiply that to you know times hundreds and thousands of people um, that have you know substandard um, housing that's not being taken care of. Um, there's you know management companies that are paid you know big money, lots of money. Um, to care for these properties. And, you know, at the end of the day, it just comes down to, you know, strong messages um, that if um, that, that, you know, uh, that we don't matter. Um, And so I think at the end of the day, we have to realize all we have is each other and um, that we've got to get um, serious about, um, uh, really developing this people-centered human rights uh, movement in which we believe that um, our lives 
are more important than um, the corporate um, interests in this country. Because not only is it hurting people here, but it's hurting people abroad. A lot of people are trying to get us um, from the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign uh, to take a position against the refugees from Afghanistan. And we're not gonna participate in that as well. Um, we know that our government is also responsible um, for all of the horrible things that have happened in Afghanistan as well, um, as well as you know other parts of the world. And um, so we're not interested in any poor people being pitted against each other uh, in this country or any place else in the world. Um, that um, our mayor made it clear um, that there's um, housing and that the 500 some refugees uh, from Afghanistan are gonna be taken in. And uh, our mayor is correct. Uh, this is a city and a country uh, that is uh, that has tons of abundance. And um, if we wanted to, um, the historically um, denied access to shelter, predominantly in Philadelphia, um, African-American um, mothers um, need to start getting housed now, um, just like the 500 uh, refugees that are coming into town. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Sherry, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary, your radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lupin. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the proposed cop training facility in Atlanta, Georgia, and the fight against it. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Jasmine, an organizer with community movement builders in Atlanta. Jasmine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Jasmine, the city of Atlanta is seemingly still considering leasing land in DeKalb County for a police training facility, and they would be leasing this specifically to the Atlanta Police Foundation for a complex that organizations have been calling Cop City, the you know uh, coalition that is opposing this. And uh, Atlanta police uh, over the years have been training officers in different temporary facilities. They're now saying that they want sort of their own thing so that they could have their own facilities to train in and all these sorts of things. And uh, there's been uh, quite a bit of pushback, I think, both from organizations who do work around policing issues and sort of the, the communities at large. I mean, people are, are making the argument that, you know, the money that it will take to, you know, construct and maintain this facility could be uh, much better spent elsewhere. And it, it doesn't seem, at least from what I was reading in reports, that there seems to be a lot of public support on this, Jasmine. So I was hoping you could sort of help us understand 
just what Cop City is and what has the struggle against it have been like up until this point? Yeah, so Cop City is exactly what it sounds like. Essentially, the city of Atlanta is planning to give away almost 400 acres of city-owned land to the Atlanta Police Foundation, as you mentioned, which is a conglomerate of corporate elites here in the city, including Coca-Cola and and plenty of other Fortune 500 companies. Um, And their plan is to build an $80 million urban warfare training facility for the Atlanta Police Department. Um, Officers will go there to practice shooting, to do explosive detonations. It's literally going to be a mock city for them to practice essentially different ways to brutalize and suppress liberatory uprisings in the city. Um, We know that this is a direct reflection and kind of result um, of the uprisings that happened last summer when folks were protesting um, the murder of Rayshard Brooks by the Atlanta Police Department. Um, You know, there were thousands of people marching in the streets demanding not only justice for Rayshard Brooks, but also uh, the abolish to abolish the Atlanta Police Department in general. Um, And so obviously the police and city council officials, as well as the corporate elite, don't want to see um, policing go away in the city because that is the institution that helps them maintain their power. Um, And so this new training facility is just a way for them to continue to practice ways to suppress those types of movements. And so community movement builders, um, we are a Black liberation organization rooted in the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Atlanta, and we've been working with a couple of other campaigns and organizations in the city. One, to just raise awareness about this, um, because very early on, we found out that um, not only do folks in the city of Atlanta not know about this proposal, but folks who are living in the neighborhood proximate to where this development would be had no idea that it was happening. Um, And that was intentional. Joyce Shepard, who is the city council person for Pittsburgh for District 12, actually introduced the proposal um, randomly. She tried to slip it into just an average meeting, but organizers were paying attention. And so we saw what she was trying to do. And so a lot of our work has just been letting people know that it was happening um, and then building people power around getting it stopped. Um, And so we were successful in getting city council to actually vote to delay the vote on um, this proposal until this upcoming Tuesday. Um, And so we're really hitting the ground um, even harder this weekend with some continued direct actions um, to, you know, reinforce to them that this is not what people want and that we are prepared to stop them from moving forward. Yeah. And the organization that is behind building this facility is not directly the Atlanta Police Department. It's actually the Atlanta Police Foundation, yes. which is a nonprofit organization. So could you could you explain who they are and where the funding is coming from to build this this cop city that sounds honestly just like an urban warfare training facility to me? Yeah. So the Atlanta Police Foundation, just like you said, it's a nonprofit foundation um, comprised of corporate elites here in the city. So representatives from UPS, um, from Georgia Pacific from, you know, Coca-Cola, Equifax, just any any Fortune 500 company that you can think of is probably a part of it. Um, and that's also where they get their funding. So they're largely funded by um, Coca-Cola and other just like large, large corporations that help them pay for a variety of different programs that just expand the police uh, policing here in the city. Um, they boast about having over 10,000 cameras, um, just 
further highlighting the fact that Atlanta is, you know, the most surveilled city in the country. Um, and that is for a reason. Part of that reason is just the amount of wealth that is poured into policing here in the city. And so you're right, they're not governed by the uh, city council or any type of kind of public elected officials. They're just a conglomerate of essentially corporate elites who want to maintain racial capitalism here in the city. Um, and their latest project in that effort is this cop city. Yeah. And what struck me about this, Jasmine, is how there seems to be there seems to have been an effort from the city government to try to silence resistance or dissent on the construction of Cop City. I mean, I know that there were these public input sessions that the city hosted along with the uh, Atlanta Police Foundation where, you know, you know, some police representatives came in, they gave like a slideshow presentation and they responded, you know, to questions that, you know, had been sent ahead of time. But you know, uh, residents weren't allowed to speak or to ask questions. And reportedly, even the chat function on these sessions were disabled. And so it seems as though the city is trying to sort of smash through this whole measure to go ahead and get the cop city built, if you will, while, while sort of claiming that they have broad support from it from the public. But if that was true, then they wouldn't have to cut the public off from being able to give their perspective on it. You know what I mean? So I was hoping you could sort of describe what the response from the city government has been like, you know, to all of this, particularly to these efforts to try to stop the building of Cop City. And I think, uh, like we've been saying, it has particular significance given, you know, the the, the killing of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta by police uh, not that long ago. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, the city council person, Joy Shepard, who introduced the ordinance, thought it was going to slide by easily and that nobody would notice. So they were not even entering into this proposal with any type of um, facade of public input. They were hoping that it would just pass without comment. And so when folks started to raise noise about it, they tried to put together a sham of a public listening session, which is actually exactly how you described. It was on Zoom. You had to sign up ahead of time. There were a limited number of participants. Your mics were off. The chat function Um, was pretty much disabled to the point where people were holding up written signs on pieces of paper to their cameras to try to get their message across. Um, And so clearly not actually any type of real desire to hear from from residents about what they really want. It was actually just trying to give the Atlanta Police Foundation the opportunity to give a presentation about their plans, um, but not provide any, any opportunity for feedback or input. Um, And so we hosted our coalition, an alternative town hall, where we invited city council to come and obviously residents from impacted communities to speak about, you know, their feelings on Cop City and what they would want to see that land used for instead. And it was a resounding no, like nobody wanted Cop City. In fact, there was a survey that was distributed a couple weeks ago, and the results show that 98 percent of Atlantans don't want Cop City to be built or to be funded. Um, and because of the momentum that we've raised around this, that is why city council three weeks ago decided to delay the vote until this upcoming Tuesday, because they wanted to use those three weeks that they said on the record to do more public input sessions, more listening sessions, which really means to give them more opportunity to try to manufacture consent around this. Um, because instead of listening to what residents have been saying, 
their ears are only open to the folks that agree with them. Um, and those folks are in the vast minority, and they're working to create propaganda around that vast minority to try to create a narrative that this is what people want. So that's how they've been spending their time in the past three weeks since the, the last vote to table until September 7th. Yeah, and I'm just curious, you know, when you all had these people's town halls, you know, what what were some of the things that people were saying they'd prefer, you know, besides uh, a cop city, besides this training ground for police that, you know, uh, definitely aren't a part of actually keeping people safe in a city like Atlanta? Like, what were some of the proposed alternatives that y'all were hearing from people? Yeah, so we heard a number of proposals, both at the town hall, but also just in the canvassing. We've been canvassing in neighborhoods across Atlanta, as well as the neighborhoods near the um, where the training facility would, which would be built, which is actually not in the city of Atlanta. Um, and we've heard a lot from people. We've heard proposals for, you know, the need for affordable housing, for investments in public infrastructure, basic things like sidewalks and bus shelters, um, improvements to MARTA, which is our local transit system um, that's pretty significantly underinvested in. So having buses that run regularly, <laughs> having bus shelters for folks who need to stand outside, um, and also just largely investing in alternatives to public safety, so alternatives to policing, thinking about what actually keeps community safe, investing in community care response teams so that folks don't feel like they have to call the police, who we know show up and cause more violence and don't actually do things to mitigate harm in community. So we heard things across the board, none of which included increasing the police budget or increasing uh, the militaristic capabilities of the Atlanta Police Department. Yeah, and the construction of this cop city, which will actually be bigger than any other police training facility in any other major city, also will have pretty significant environmental impacts as well. Can you kind of go into some of the things that people are already finding uh, in regard to the impact on the environment in the area that Cop City is proposed for? Yes. Um, so a few a few things about that, just to start off talking about the location. So the location would be in DeKalb County in an area that is primarily Black, working class, um, which is notable because the folks who are calling for more policing, who are calling for more a more militarized police force don't live in that area. They live in Midtown, in Buckhead, in wealthy white enclaves that are um, in the northern area of the city. So the complete opposite geography of where this would be built. So I think it's notable just to have on the record that the folks who are concerned about, quote unquote, crime, who want more investment in policing, don't actually want to live near where the police training facility would be. Um, and to speak to your question around environmental concerns, Currently, the land um, where the facility would be built is the largest kind of forest green space in the metropolitan area of Atlanta. It's responsible for collecting storm runoff water to prevent flooding in areas, which is a huge issue in Atlanta. Almost any time it rains, low-income neighborhoods, neighborhoods without proper infrastructure, they flood. Um, and this would get even worse. If, you know, the forest, which has been collecting the water, is disseminated in order to build this new facility. Um, so that, those are just like the, the base level um, environmental concerns. Then on top of that, we talk about the uses of the facility. So explosive testing, shooting ranges, all of the kind of exhaust from those, all the pollutants from those activities um, are likely to run off into the water supply of the local community. And we know that that's going to lead to long-term negative health outcomes. 
And what's important to also have on the record is that city council lied and said that, you know, there was an environmental report that cleared all of this, that everything was fine. Um, and that's simply not the case. That was a bold-faced lie. So I think the environmental concerns are important to situate within the larger context of environmental racism, which is just an, an additional pattern of white people, white wealthy people kind of separating themselves from the impacts, the negative impacts of the things that they're championing. Um, it's not a coincidence that this location for the, this facility is not in the area, um, the rich white areas um, where the people who are asking for more money to, for policing actually live. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Jasmine, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle. Today, we're being joined by Miguel Garcia, the host and creator of the Sports as a Weapons podcast. Miguel, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Sean and Jackie. Thank you for having me again. Absolutely. And Miguel, I wanted to start today by talking about Cam Newton, who was uh, released as the quarterback for the New England Patriots earlier this week, something that's uh, been the cause of uh, quite a lot of buzz around the uh, football world and really, I think, anyone paying attention to professional sports. And, of course, this will clear the way for Mac Jones to remain on and start as quarterback. And, you know, Miguel, I'm not sure if we know exactly why this happened. Certainly, if you could shed some light on that, we'd appreciate it. But, I mean, uh, uh, even with that, I'm wondering how you sort of see the ripple effects of uh, Newton's removal here. When I first heard the news, I was a little shocked. Um, and actually, my first thought was, oh, maybe they cut him because he's one of the players that wasn't vaccinated. But then that was like a lot of people's thoughts at first. But then, according to Bill Belichick, he said that wasn't the reason. Um, and then I started seeing reports from people that cover the Patriots, just reading it on Twitter and reading the articles. Um, and a lot of them were saying, well, Mac Jones just beat him. It wasn't because he wasn't vaccinated. It's kind of like, I didn't really, I'm not a Patriots fan, but I try to keep up with a lot of the teams. I don't remember him. I remember it being a quarterback battle between them two and who's going to get the starting job. But most people said, oh, well, Cam, will, Cam is still going to get the job, you know, but, you know, they're battling for it. But it didn't seem like he was going to get cut. To me, it might be because he wasn't vaccinated, but they're just trying to say it's not. Um, but also, I think the reactions of him getting cut, cut is something that's uh, something I analyze more as well because it, it seemed like a lot of people were like uh, celebrating him getting cut. And it got very, uh, maybe very anti-black to me with that. So even though he might have been unvaccinated, there's plenty of NFL players that haven't been vaccinated, and I'm sure on the Patriots, 
who didn't get cut. And I think maybe that is why he got cut. And they're just using another excuse to why, because he just missed practice like last week because of something to do with COVID protocols. But I don't think it was even him testing positive. He like misunderstood the protocols and I guess ended up putting them like having him miss like five days and he had to quarantine. I think it was just like a close contact, but it was, I don't know, there was a lot of stuff going on before he got cut, but I was still very surprised. And to be honest, I think that's some of it to me is a little, that's to do with race, in my opinion. Yeah, I tend to agree. I mean, it definitely feels like there's a racial aspect to it, particularly in the discourse, if you will, around uh, Mac Jones. And, and you made a point there about the whole issue of uh, vaccines within the NFL. And I mean, I'm just wondering how you've sort of seen that play out over the last year or so since the pandemic has escalated, having, you know, a serious impact on uh, professional sports. I mean, of course, you know about the NBA and its bubble and, and all those sorts of things. But I mean, when we, from a cultural aspect, when we look at how uh, it's sort of been grappled with within the NFL, Miguel, I'm just wondering how you've sort of how you've seen that play out. Have you seen players react to it? And just what seems to be the kind of attitude there? Oh, I've seen, I think most players are vaccinated, like majority are, but it's still, and it's, it's a little higher than like the actual, you know, average of you know our country as a whole as in vaccination rates. But there's still a lot of players that aren't like against vaccines, and uh, some of them seem to be, you know, based on conspiracy. But then um, some players that might be, I know they're kind of hesitant because of cultural. Uh, histories and, you know, issues of vaccine against black folks and stuff like that. But I've seen a lot of white players be very vocal about not being vaccinated, and it seems just to be tied into the whole right-wing conspiracy way. And one of those players is Cole Beasley, who uh, um, from the Buffalo Bills, so he's not on the Patriots, a different team. But And people have criticized him, but I also don't see as I don't know. I don't see the same reactions from the media towards him that people were uh, doing to Cam Newton, you know, blaming him. Well, it's because you're not vaccinated, which, uh, again, I'm pro-vaccine, but this is, um, I could just see the differences in the reactions when I'm looking at Twitter and reading reading stuff from a lot, a lot of the white media. Because Cole Beasley is getting... Um, uh, you know, getting negative reactions for his stance on not being vaccinated because he's very vocal about it. But it also seems like a lot of players in the NFL that might be pro-vaccine also uh, saying, well, it's an individual choice. So it doesn't seem like even uh, teammates might be, like, holding people accountable for something. It is a personal choice, but I was kind of surprised that there's just a lot of mixed reactions. And the way I think about it, even if I maybe would have been hesitant to get a vaccine, as an NFL player, I don't know, there's, they're going to use it against you through, you know, your contracts and stuff like that. So that would be one reason, because they're always going to hold capitalism against you. So I was a little surprised that it's not as uh, I have a percentage of what I've seen on people being super pro-vaccine. But I, I see the differences between rates because Cole Beasley's getting uh, 
negative reactions, but it seems like everyone's piling on Cam Newton more, like making more jokes about it. Yeah, the, the, this whole thing is really sketchy to me with Cam Newton. And, and I, I, you know, I, I keep in mind that he had a, a, a one-year deal that was signed in March. He would have earned $5.1 million if he was healthy and on the roster as a backup. And I, I guess people would be like, well, you know, maybe Belichick didn't want to pay Newton that much money to, to sit on the bench, but he's going to have to pay somebody to sit on the bench. So cutting Cam Newton Seems really sketchy to me, but football is, uh, it, it's been sketchy when it comes to, to a lot of things. And I, I, I can't look at this story that ESPN broadcast. Actually, they broadcast a high school football game featuring a sketchy school that barely seems to exist. I mean, I'm not even sure how this happened. I, I can't imagine, Miguel, how it got past the folks at ESPN that a whole high school wasn't really a legit school at all. But apparently that's what happened. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this sketchy little game that ESPN broadcast. Well, first off, I like a lot of people that it was funny at first because I'm like, how did, how did someone like ESPN get, like how did they get tricked into this into allowing a school that, when you look it up on the internet and Google it, you can't really find a lot of stuff on it. And they actually go to the website and like it'll have certain information, but a lot of key information you would think someone like ESPN would need to book a school like on national television would need. Um, but I also thought about from my own experience as well, like for my actual day job that I do, I won't say exactly what it is, like the name of it, but it has to do with schools and um, compliance of schools, not not high schools like this school would be, but with trade schools. And from my experience at my job, you there's a lot of fake schools, and they could pretty much slip through the cracks, and you won't even know, like the state won't even know about it until you actually, you know, someone might complain to complain, make a complaint to the school or something or to the state. And then the whole bureaucracy happens and a lot of stuff happens. Sometimes it could go a while before even a school gets in trouble or gets shut down. Um, so it kind of made me think of that, even though this is high schools in a different state. So I'm sure there's other schools like this. And then I've heard that this happens a lot in AAU basketball, where people will just make teams up a bunch of high school kids and like have this fake school, but they really don't really have a school. Like They might have a building but they're not really doing any actual schooling. So it was very interesting, but I was like, how can, it was like, how can ESPN, some big old capitalist company that puts these national TV games on, how do they get tricked by some random school like that? It's crazy. Yeah, and we're talking about the uh, Bishop Sycamore School um, that was playing in the Geico Kickoff Classic Series against the IMG Academy, which is a, a powerhouse sports school out of Florida. And just looking into it is wild because, I mean, we were talking about the website earlier. Well, now the website doesn't even appear to be functioning when, when you try to visit it. And uh, one guy named Aaron Boyd, who who told reporters that he was the first player that was ever recruited to Bishop Sycamore, I mean, he said that the players would live in a hotel for five months and only went to one day of class, and that class was held in a public library. 
uh, he was also talking about how several of the players on the Bishop Sycamore team when he was there were above high school age. He told uh, Complex, quote, when I was there, I was 15. Everybody else there was 19 and 20. And uh, another guy named Ray Holtzclaw, he had a son named Judah who played quarterback from the school. He said that he had to pay for hotels and meals a lot for the players. And he said that, I mean, his suspicions were really peaked before their first game uh, when he realized that they had not practiced and didn't even have proper equipment. I mean, it was also shown that the address that's provided for Bishop Sycamore is actually like an indoor sports training facility. And someone who works there did uh, see like a group of people, you know, practicing there, but didn't see like any education. So just a very weird sort of thing that I think actually speaks to, I mean, the deep competitiveness and the pipeline around uh, youth sports and how much of a business it is. I also have to say, I think it's hilarious that these cats uh, got beat by a bunch of high schoolers. But be that as it may, we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Miguel Garcia, so much for joining us today. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, September 3rd, 2021. And uh, I should probably let our listeners know that uh, by any means necessary, we'll not be broadcasting this coming Monday because we'll be off for the holiday. But uh, we will be back on Tuesday. So we'll holler at you then. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you would, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right. Happy Friday, y'all. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Eugene Perrier, host of the Punch-Out! podcast on Breakthrough News and author of the book Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. Eugene, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, as always, it is my pleasure to be joining you here on By Any Means Necessary. 
Well, I assure you the pleasure is all ours, Eugene. And, you know, I'm glad to see that you're okay given how Hurricane Ida struck New York City and the Northeast United States. Also saw that you all were still able to broadcast there at Breakthrough News. So that was good to see as well because, I mean, Ida just has had such a, an impact on the country, you know, not just the South, where we usually see impacts from hurricanes and things like this. But I mean, at least five of the states that were struck by Ida had tornadoes touchdown. I mean, Pennsylvania had 16 tornado warnings at this point and also a lot of uh, power outages as well. I mean, Mississippi is reporting over 86,000 households without electricity, 57,000 in New Jersey without electricity, 37,000 in Connecticut, over 18,000 in Pennsylvania. Uh, reports in Louisiana put the number between 800,000 and a million people out of power there in that state. Uh, also issues of uh, downed water and cellular systems, oxygen and, and fuel shortages. I mean, in Connecticut, there were discharges of untreated sewage. And in parts of Virginia, at least 20 homes were actually moved off of their foundations. Now, according to officials in Virginia, it will take 30 days a month to restore power and a year for public water to be completely restored. And I mean, Eugene, it's I mean, it's pretty incredible. I mean, uh, like I say, you're in New York City where we've been seeing reports of people who died in their basement apartments. And why is that? Because that's some that's that's some of the only housing in New York City that that approaches affordable. And so it just seems very clear at this point that there's a distinct class character to the impacts of Hurricane Ida that I think make the reality, if people weren't already aware, that, you know, we're experiencing climate change right now. It's not something that we're on the edge of or something that we're, you know, uh, think may happen down the road, but we're experiencing it right now in any real sort of approach or policy to mitigate that will have to, I think, come about fairly soon uh, as these things seemingly will only stand to get worse. You know, I think that is a very pressing point. I mean, something must happen now right away. You know, you look at the basement apartment issue, and there's a number of different issues with that, but certainly, as you point out, the fact that it's very difficult for people to find uh, affordable housing. But, you know, in fact, this is a problem that had already been identified several years ago by authorities in the city of New York, and they developed a plan to at least partially address the issue of basement apartments, the dangers of them, uh, the dangers of living in them, what needs to be done to fix them, uh, and to push forward to try to address this issue. But it was, of course, not slated to be completed until 2023. Well, it's 2021. Obviously, they didn't do all the work that they needed to do. But you can already see that just the rollout of even plans to deal with problems that are foreseen, forget those which are unforeseen, which is one of the biggest challenges of climate change, it's still happening on such a long timeline that it has no basis in the reality of the actual challenges people are facing right now. I mean, you know, the actual number of lightning, people struck by lightning is actually going up quite significantly all around the world, especially in the country of India, because there is uh, the increase, basically the increase in extreme weather 
the increase in the moisture in the air and different things like that is making lightning more normal. And so you've got countries that are now having more people struck by lightning due to climate change, which is supposed to be the thing that's like, oh, you're going to be struck by lightning, but it's happening more often in more countries more frequently. And really, when we look at the IPCC report, it becomes very clear that we are in the midst of a climate crisis. We are headed towards three degrees of warming. The best case scenario is that all of the terrible extreme effects we're seeing already that we can sort of hold it here. But it's very clear that there is a deep cleavage running through the entire world, quite frankly. And that is the only real way to address climate change substantively in a way that can actually address the problem at the scale we need it to prevent total collapse of the planet is to address the capitalist and imperialist accumulation structure in the United States. I mean, just take this one fact. The day after we learn about the devastation that took place in Louisiana. You have the Biden administration open up 80 million acres, maybe it's hectares, um, of the Gulf of Mexico to oil and gas drilling. So you know, on the one hand, you've got Biden speaking about Ida in New York and also in Louisiana. I think he's in Louisiana today uh, saying we have to recognize the reality of climate change. Then the next thing you know, they're saying let's drill in the Gulf of Mexico, where we all remember two months ago we saw the picture of the ocean on fire. So ultimately, the reality is is that there isn't the political will in the vast majority of countries on Earth, and the ones where there are the political will aren't the big, huge, powerful Western countries to actually take the type of bold measures that are needed. They'd rather just pay lip service. And even in New York City, where every single elected official will tell you how important climate change is, how they're on top of climate change, what they're doing, you can see the most basic things. And I'll close with this. Like when you look at the 145th Street train station, where there was that uh, video that went viral of of water just rushing down the stairs, that was the northeast corner. Not the southeast corner. Why is that important? Because in the southeast corner, there's a raised step. And that's all it is. It's just like a raised piece of concrete to act as a water break to prevent things like that from happening. Why would you do that on one corner and not the other when it's leading to the exact same place? But it all just gives you a sense of how much the lip service, even in the most quote-unquote liberal areas, is not, uh, and forget Louisiana, is not anywhere close to living up to the rhetoric. Yeah, Eugene, and that lip service is, of course, you know, what politicians that have been, you know, telling people that we need to vote for them to get rid of the other bad politicians always deliver to folks. But the people who end up on the short end of the stick are always working class and poor people. And these politicians never put the needs of those people who they spend all this money, literally millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in ad campaigns and all this kind of stuff to convince people to vote for them. When we suffer these kinds of natural disasters, when the simplest solutions like a a raised concrete step could have been implemented to solve a problem that people are literally dying from. And, And these politicians still have the nerve. Politicians like Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema have the nerve to complain or to hold up a vote on an infrastructure bill that's desperately needed, isn't where isn't anywhere close to enough, but something is needed to be done. And these people still want to prop themselves up as better than the Republicans. I, I just feel like there is revolution 
in the air and uh, hopefully in the hearts of people, Eugene. But I'm, I'm wondering what your feeling is among folks in New York City, which seems to be like the epicenter for, you know, capitalism, climate change and, and just, you know, working class, hopefully working class discontent. Well, I tell you what, I'm holding the same hope in my heart. I mean, I definitely think that what we see here in New York on the ground is a huge disconnect between the politicians and the masses of people. I mean, you're going to see a mayoral election here in about a month or so. Uh, Perhaps Eric Adams will win. I think he almost certainly will win. But, you know, I'm I'm more than supportive of Kathy Rojas, who's a socialist candidate running for mayor. So I like to keep the eternal flame burning here. But nevertheless, you know, more likely than not, less than 40% of people will vote. And I'm probably being a little bit generous there. It'll probably be even lower than that. I mean, I know that Bill de Blasio a couple of times was elected with like 31% uh, of the electorate turning out. And so ultimately you can see that there is a huge feeling when you walk around the city, when you talk to people about the fact that these political figures really don't represent much of anything. They certainly don't represent the interests of the places. And really the only thing that's allowing them to keep moving forward is the lack of real strong organized opposition. But that's the thing that we've started to see grow here in a range of different ways. I mean, certainly it was happening in a major way during the pandemic where all over the city, massive mutual aid networks sprung up to protect people, but we've seen it in multiple different ways. I mean, you look at the issue of, say, undocumented workers who were unable to be included in some of the pandemic relief programs, but also, you know, needed that kind of relief. Well, I mean, they shut down the Brooklyn Bridge. They took over streets all over the place. They protested. They sat in. Um, They continued to do a number of different things. Even the thousands of people, when they shut down the Brooklyn Bridge. I think there was 10, 15,000 people out there. And lo and behold, the politicians put forward $2.1 billion to help excluded workers be be able to address the financial difficulties they were facing because of the pandemic. We've seen the deliveristas, uh, the folks who are working for Uber, for DoorDash, for all these people. There was an attempt by Uber and Lyft to try to put in this you know, ridiculous bill that they was they were claiming was pro-labor. And unfortunately, they had a few scab-type labor officials who were working with them to try to do what they've done in California and make sure that there's no real rights for those who are delivering food, including, by the way, during the floods that were happening uh, just a couple days ago. There were people still out delivering food and waste-high water. Well, nevertheless, that was also defeated because of these drivers coming together, organizing and rallying community members, and a bill that looked like it was guaranteed to pass with the support of two of the biggest, most powerful countries on Earth was dead on arrival. Uh, And I think ultimately we're seeing many, many more pieces, more victories at differing levels of, of relevance, at differing levels of radicalism, um, certainly, there's been just the election of more people who call themselves socialist in this uh, city. I mean, you look at Astoria, Queens, if I'm not mistaken, there may be a couple little parts of Astoria that doesn't apply to, but by and large, at the city council level, at the state legislature level, in both the House and the Senate, and at the congressional level, Astoria is represented by politicians who are self-described socialists. Now, do I necessarily agree with everything they say? I, you know, I don't want to go that far, but I do think it's pretty notable that in an American city, you've got from every level of local, municipal to federal, uh, this neighborhood represented by people who are proudly calling themselves socialists and not trying to hide it. And so I think that we're seeing a range of different fronts that are emerging here. I mean, we even have here, even though not a lot of people are talking about it, major pipeline resistance happening in Brooklyn. They're trying to run a gas pipeline through Brooklyn, and people are standing up uh, quite significantly there. So I think we're seeing on a number of different fronts here in New York, at least. And I think it is a, a, you can extrapolate this to some degree for what we're seeing in the country, but I think it's very clear 
here that there is a rising tide of resistance, a rising tide of organization, and certainly that tide of resistance and organization is really rising on the back of a huge amount of disaffection from people towards the just unbelievable political representatives of the rich, because it's so easy in New York, just like in D.C., to find places where people have everything they possibly could ever need and a hundred times anything that they could ever possibly need. It's easy to see that they control the politicians, and it's easy to see just a few blocks over that it's not really delivering for people. So I'm also hopeful. I mean, as terrible as all of this is, I am hopeful to see that there are a lot of, of, of clear Small but clear wins and coming out of that even more significant organization. Definitely. And it's funny you mentioned the Deliveristas. I was actually just reading a piece about them on labornotes.org because apparently these these delivery apps, they, you know, during difficult weather like rain and snow and things like that, um, sometimes they'll they'll incentivize people to basically trek through it to deliver people's food and things like that. And, you know, if you do three in a row, maybe uh, you'll get some amount of money and things like this. But they were talking to one delivery person who, who's a deliverista, and uh, they were talking about how, you know, he uses his scooter and that he actually lost money because he was one of the delivery people that got caught in the flood. You know, his like engine or his motor on his uh, scooter flooded. So he now has to pay for that. And of course, you know, uh, the company, he worked at Grubhub and, you know, they're not liable for that. Just like they, you know, don't give the people health care and paid time off and, and things like that. I mean, workers comp or, or even a guarantee of a minimum wage. I mean, this is just, I think, one of the ways that, you know, these companies make money hand over fist is that they're just not sort of financially liable for for so many aspects of the people actually doing the labor. And as such, I agree that it's good that they have those organizations like that. And I think uh, in recent years, we've seen a rise in the labor organization of folks we may call gig workers. And their plot, I think, is just one of many things that's really had a spotlight shown on it in the course of the pandemic. And, you know, I do think it's noteworthy when we talk about sort of the increasing popularity of uh, socialism in the United States and the pushback that we've seen from the ruling class, you know, both Democrat and Republican against that. And, you know, we were talking a little earlier about the issue of housing and, and and how expensive it is to live in New York City. And Eugene, you know, you're someone who has done organizing around housing issues for years. And, you know, what we've been seeing is that the cost of living in this entire country is is just going up and up and up. And it's becoming just increasingly more difficult for people almost everywhere to really find a place where they can afford to live. I mean, uh, lately I've been bringing up a lot this report that said that, you know, a person working uh, full-time hours on minimum wage can only afford a one-bedroom rental in about 7% of American counties. And so this country is basically becoming uninhabitable from an economic standpoint for the masses of poor, working, and oppressed people. And I'm just wondering what you think that means, Eugene, in terms of how capitalism sort of production functions on the one hand and just, you know, the very real suffering that comes about as a result. Well, I think you're making a very good point. I mean, this is why we've seen, you know, organizations like the Fight for 15 raise up the slogan of one job should be enough. I mean, the idea is really so deeply ingrained, uh, I think, in sort of American mythology, right, that you should be able to have a good, decent job and take care of your family. But as you point out, you know, really, quite frankly, that's a pipe dream for tens of millions of people in the United States. I mean, this is a country where there's 32 million workers that don't have access to one paid day off. Uh, and also, 
you might be interested in this, there's also 32 million workers who would get a raise if you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And the average wage, the average raise would be $3,000 a year, $3,000 extra income. So it gives you a sense of how deep in poverty people are living when the average of 32 million people getting a raise to $15 an hour would give people $3,000 extra a year. So um, certainly the amount of just unbelievable poverty wages. I mean, you certainly look at the issue of the unemployment insurance, which of course is now, you know, all being cut off. Well, when they put in this most recent iteration of the extension of federal unemployment benefits, the reason it was $300, because you all remember it was $600 originally in the uh, 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 beginning part of the pandemic in the CARES Act, was because you had people like Joe Manchin, who Jackie already mentioned, and especially him, but others who were saying, well, they wanted to make sure that people were not incentivized to not work, which basically means they wanted to make sure you were forced to go work a poverty wage job because there was no way that $300 was going to incentivize anyone who's making a decent wage. It was only people whose wages were poverty wages in the first place. Now, that being said, it wasn't even doing that. This whole idea of a, of a labor shortage was completely fake, but I don't want to get too sidetracked on that issue because I think it speaks to the bigger issue that you're raising here, Sean, which is the future of the country. And I think that if you really look at well, for instance, take last Friday when the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell spoke at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is where the Fed has a big economic conference every year where all the hedge fund managers and big banks and other people, some journalists, go to get a sense of what the Federal Reserve's outlook is on the economy moving forward. And of, of all the things that Mr. Powell said, uh, Chairman Powell said, that one of the things that really jumped out at me was what he was saying in terms of the sort of general what he felt was the general sort of soundness of the economy. And basically what he was saying, the exact words are eluding me now, but I think productivity and globalization gains were making him confident that things were going to basically be okay and the economy would would continue to grow. I think what's notable about that is, well, increases in productivity really only mean two things, and they usually mean these two things combined in capitalism. Now, the thing we most think about with productivity, right, is more machines, more robots, so that the same number of people, or slightly less people, can make, let's say, double the amount of what they could before, because the machines that they're working on are much more efficient. And so certainly that in and of itself is a challenge, right? We know about growing automation. But usually the result of productivity is not just automation and the growth of structural unemployment, which is a huge piece out of that, but it also means that people are working for longer hours. And so you look at, say, the auto industry, which has become significantly more automated, and there's a significantly larger amount of structural unemployment. But the other thing that very few people talk about outside of auto workers is the shifts for auto workers have become a lot longer, and people are working more in, with more intensity. And so basically increases in productivity mean they're looking for machines that mean they can have fewer workers, they have to pay fewer wages, but also to increase the pace of work and make people work significantly harder. So you've got two huge issues that come out of that. And that, of course, is structural unemployment growing because of automation, even if it's not in huge, huge ways. I think sometimes it's overplayed, but also people being forced to work more murderous style shifts, like the people in Nabisco who are working 18-hour days, or the people in Nabisco in Portland, Oregon, who were the first to go on strike, who once worked 30 straight 12 to 18-hour days, 30 straight 12 to 18-hour days. But the other side of that equation is the globalization piece, because that's the race to the bottom for wages. It's something that, you know, Newt Gingrich said in 2012 when he ran for the Republican primary that always stuck with me, and they said, well, are you worried about 
wage competition with China. And he said, well, China's raising their wages, so I'm actually not that concerned about that because I think in yeah, 15, 20 years, the wages in China and the wages in South Carolina are going to be about the same. Now, of course, for China, that would be a big jump up um, as they emerge from you know, the, the past and, and grow out of extreme poverty. You know, for South Carolina, those are like the lowest wages in the United States, right? And so the idea that there's sort of going to become a growing wage harmony is something that many people have been talking about vis-a-vis globalization as the overall race to the bottom to destroy unions, to cut wages, to send jobs to other countries, to force workers in different states, different regions, and different countries to all compete against one another for jobs ultimately brings down the cost of wages. So this is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. One could say most likely the most powerful economic official working for any public entity on the planet. The Federal Reserve is one of the most central institutions to the entire capitalist economy around the globe. And it really is not just the U.S. central bank. It's really the central bank of the world. And he's saying he's relatively confident about the trajectory of the world capitalist economy because he thinks that capitalists are going to continue to grow unemployment, make people work harder, and pay them less for it. So that should give you a sense of where the trajectory of capitalism is going when its top officials are basically saying you're going to have to work longer, work harder, work for less money, and that that's actually what they want because that's how they're going to make more profits. So I think the second part of your question is what does that portend for the broader system? And, you know, I think it it could pretend multiple things. I mean, certainly this was what Rosa Luxemburg meant when she said at the in the early 1900s, it's either socialism or barbarism. I think that was true then, and it's true now. Either you're going to take all of the things that society has in terms of its material, spiritual, mental, intellectual wealth, and find a way to use it to save the planet and to give everyone the best living standard possible, or you're going to drive the country into, or the world into just a complete and total disaster from the point of view of the natural lived environment, drastic increases in everything bad that we can possibly think about, and something that would be sort of a neo-feudal, neo-fascist, brutal, dystopian, sci-fi nightmare type of existence. I mean, that's really where we're going when we think about what is happening. And it's certainly the direction that the richest, most powerful people in the world are more than willing to drive us off that cliff if if they're given the opportunity to do so. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Eugene Perrier. And we have a caller on the line here, Wesley. Tell us what's on your mind. All right. First up, what's up to Eugene, alumni of the show? I've been listening since way back in the day, like 2017, I think, back when I was busting tables at a restaurant. I put you guys in to pass the time. But, uh, no, I was going to call about a minimum wage. You know, like I always say, I live out here in California. So in California, for example, by law, small businesses can pay a dollar lower than minimum wage. 
And so, you know, there's always the, the mantra of, oh, support small business. But the fact is, is I work right now two jobs for small businesses, and I make minimum wage, but I had to fight my way like hell, like asking and working hard just to get minimum wage because I was making 13 an hour. And 13 an hour in Sacramento is damn near impossible to make a buy on. But no, yeah, it, I mean, it's so tough, you know, when you work 60 hours a week and, you know, your rent's over and, you know, you know, it's damn near a thousand you have to hit that. And, you know, meanwhile, California has, it's the richest state in, you know, the United States, I want to say. We have some of the richest people here, yet we also have some of the poorest, which, you know, people call California liberal paradise. In a sense, I would say it's liberal because liberal is still capitalist. And that's a very obvious thing when we have the, you know, the highest gap in a lot of places between poor and wealthy. You know, it's not a socialist paradise out here, that's for sure. No matter what, you know, the right-wing fascist types trying to make us sound like. No, we got all the same struggles. And like I said, the toughest part is, you know, you want to support small businesses. But as a worker at a small business, it's tougher for us to make it by. They don't have to pay us any health care either. Uh, no paid time off when I'm sick. You know, I I have to cover for myself. If it wasn't for the unemployment benefits when I caught COVID last year and was out for two weeks, I would have been screwed and probably lost my home. So anyway, once again, thank you guys for having me on the show. And uh, thank you. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Wesley. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Eugene, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's right on. It's right on 100%. I mean, you know, you think about a state like California, Billionaires in California alone have an estimated $1 trillion in combined wealth. And I mean, you know, that's probably an undercount in some ways. I think that actually was a number from a couple of years ago. So it's a little bit higher now, given that billionaires in the United States have gained, I believe it's $1.3 trillion in wealth over the course of the pandemic, which just gives you an amazing sense of how for most of us, it was the worst year ever. But for billionaires, it was actually the greatest year they've ever had in the history of the earth in terms of wealth accumulation. But yeah, I mean, you know, you look at the issue of small business, you know, the reality is is the myths around small business are just completely fake. I mean, I guess they're myths, so of course they're fake. But I mean, you know, it really is some of the most powerful capitalist propaganda because it really talks about a world that just doesn't exist. I mean, you'll hear things like the vast majority of small, like the vast majority of businesses are small businesses. Well, that's because when you count small businesses, you count all sorts of things, including, by the way, someone who files their taxes as an independent contractor because they work for Uber. That's a small business in terms of the official government counts. But the reality is that the vast majority of people work for businesses that employ over 100 people. Small business is not the heart of the economy. It's not the majority of the economy. In fact, it's relatively marginal to what is the true heart of the economy, and that is huge monopoly capitalist corporations. And quite frankly, even a lot of quote-unquote small businesses are really actually just pass-throughs for huge companies. I mean, think about it like this. What do they sell at a bodega or a convenience store that's independently owned? They don't make any of that. It's all coming from big, huge corporations like Nabisco, where workers are on strike. That's who's making the Oreos that they're selling to you for an inflated price. Why are they selling it to you for an inflated price? Well, it's the only way they can survive. Because you wouldn't go to the bodega if they had, if, if uh, uh, you were looking for a price. You're going to go to the grocery store. You're going to go to a larger store where they can use the advantage of scale and size to make the prices lower. And so that's another piece on that. But just think about people who are franchisees. You can make a lot of money 
owning franchises for, say, McDonald's or Starbucks. And there are a lot of relatively large franchise companies, too, but it's one of those kind of small businesses or people who are independent insurance agents with a state farm license or a nationwide license. They're independent businesses, small businesses. When you look at them on taxes, when you look at them on paper, it's, you know, the Sean Blackman franchise company. But where would you be if it wasn't for the Burger King and the McDonald's and the corporate monopoly label that allow you to bring in customers? So we've created this entire myth. I wrote an article about this in 2016. You can find it on liberationnews.org called Small Business is Not the Heart of the U.S. Economy because this is what Hillary Clinton was saying. But it's used consistently to essentially browbeat people into supporting things that only support huge, big, monopoly capitalist businesses and have nothing to do with the fact that small business is essentially an anachronism. That's why the vast majority of small businesses all fail within five years. And it's really just become a a form of propaganda, a form of flag waving that's designed to make you think that capitalism is all good, American, apple pie, white picket fence, you know, kind of deal. And it's the opposite of what it really is. So I think anytime you hear people start promoting anything on the basis of we got to support small business, you should certainly be a little bit skeptical. Yeah, Eugene, I think that's absolutely true. And it also brings to mind, you know, how we're all browbeat into becoming entrepreneurs, right? How we're we're all, you know, especially black folks, especially poor black folks. You know, if you just owned your own business, you could do better. And, and you know, we understand where that logic and reasoning goes. It doesn't go to actually help improve our material conditions at all. And it's this browbeating of working class and poor people into buying into this narrative that capitalism is good, that that business will save us, that enterprise is in our liberation. But, you know, when things like this happen, like this natural disaster that's having an effect through, you know, a third of the country happen and we're seeing the ramifications of it down in New Orleans, we actually see like what capitalism really is, where people who were not able to leave New Orleans because they were poor, because they didn't have money, because the city didn't do anything to provide for their safety, to give them a safe place to shelter. Well, now they're being once again subjected to an onslaught of law enforcement where people are being, you know, criminalized for quote unquote looting. Now, They have no running water, no electricity, no access to food. The people who were able to leave didn't like check with their neighbors and say, hey, look, here's food we have in our refrigerator. Do you want it? Can we, you know, can we share this with you so that, you know, you can at least have something to eat for the because, you know, the power's out. So their food's going to be, you know, these people have been left in New Orleans with nothing, people who had nothing. And instead of, the city doing anything to help these people, the cops roll in before FEMA does and keeps people, actually doesn't keep people, like 40 people were arrested for quote unquote looting in the city, I think last night or over the past couple of days. And this is in a city that was hit by a hurricane where people had nothing in the first place, couldn't afford to leave. But I mean, what what business helped them, Eugene? Where where is enterprise helping these people? Where is like the Dollar Tree Corporation opening its doors and saying, you know what? We don't have any power. We know people got to eat. Y'all babies need diapers. Just come on in and get it. We'll write it off as an insurance loss anyway. You know, where 
where's business and corporation and, and the God of capitalism in providing for people in New Orleans in the aftermath of this disaster? You know, I sure would like to know too, Jackie, because it's like you go to their website and they've always got some corporate responsibility page about all these great things they're allegedly doing. You know, you go in the CVS and you'll have the little picture of the little league team they're sponsoring and this, that, and the third. But I mean, the absurdity of what you just laid out, it's just so hard to fathom because you would just think, okay, the food is going to go bad. I mean, you're like a grocery store. I mean, the reality is if the power is out, none of that stuff is going to make it you know, more than a few days, especially the meat and things like that. How is it looting to actually put that to use, really to put anything to use in the context of a disaster like that? I mean, it really just makes no sense at all. I mean, I remember once uh, last year I was in Minneapolis when the uprising was happening, and, you know, some people the night before had gone into a pay less, and, um, you know, they've gone into a pay less. The moral of the story is the next day, there was actually a free store that had been set up in a parking lot with the goods from the Payless, and people were coming in to get the things that they needed. And I just thought to myself, you know, a lot of people would condemn this, but what does it say about the richest country in the history of countries that there are people who need shoes but can't afford them? I mean, you just think like that would be a basic thing that people would be provided. And then in a disaster, to say that people taking food, uh, quite frankly, taking almost anything, um, like this, you're potentially going to die, this is the worst case scenario, whatever it is, that somehow it's more moral to just allow things to remain locked up and rot rather than be used to preserve people's lives is honestly unbelievable. I mean, I, I remember there's a widely circulated image from Hurricane Sandy here in New York back, back in 2012. There's all this devastation for the Home Depot in Queens totally boarded up and protected by cops. Well, I mean, at this point, what is the point in keeping the Home Depot boarded up? People's whole lives are destroyed. Home Depot has no idea when they're going to reopen. People need to rebuild, but there are cops protecting this, this store filled with building goods. And, you know, of course, those might not rot or whatever it may be, but you can just think about the need to rebuild and to do things and that being totally determined by the whims of a capitalist corporation. And it just speaks to the extreme irrationality of capitalism. Like as much as capitalists try to make everything seem like it's all about human nature, it's all about logic, this, that, and the third, you know, things are working out the way they're supposed to through the market, the invisible hand, blah, blah, blah. There are all these just anomalies. They're not really anomalies, but I'll just call it like <laughs> use that word for now. That really speaks to the fact that this is a totally irrational system. People are hungry and in dire straits and there's food, but you can't have it. People are living on the streets and there's empty homes, but you can't go in them. People are willing to work and out looking for jobs, but they can't find them or they get turned away because they're black or their zip code is wrong or they don't have the right type of hairstyle. I mean, all these things that just make no sense at all when you put them in front of just basic everyday things that people know to be right and know to be wrong, and they're considered widely okay. I mean, one and a half million people die of diabetes in the U.S., every single year. But if you said, well, let's do something about all these sugary drinks and things like that, that Coca-Cola is pushing on people, you'd be considered some sort of fascist. So, I mean, it really just goes to show that we have normalized a huge amount of suffering under capitalism to the degree that people don't even fully realize the actual scale of the suffering, which is exactly the way it is. It's just like abuse in any other context. The normalization of abuse is a defense mechanism that people use when they're in situations that they cannot escape. And they have to sort of normalize it and excuse it and find ways to cope with it because they don't know how to get out. And because there is nothing taught to us anywhere ever in the history 
of how we come through school about things being able to be different than capitalism. In fact, we're told anything else is just a pipe dream, and it may sound good in theory, but it could never work in practice. People are, it's basically a mass abuse, and people have normalized the traumatic experiences we're forced to go through all day, every day, to find a way to cope because they don't know how to get out. And I think it's, it's, it's a huge statement about what's going on in our society when we put these things together, and it's exactly the type of thing that they don't want people to really see and make the connections, and that's why shows like this and By Any Means Necessary are so critical, because it's so rare that you're able to have any outlet where we can have this kind of conversation. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back, so please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary Young Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Eugene Perrier is here. And you know, Eugene... With so many things sort of happening at once, so many uh, contradictions of capitalism seemingly just raising, raging and, and mixing and imploding and just visibly deteriorating people's conditions. For me, it seems like the only real hope is the strengthening and building of a movement and the development and advancement of a real socialist program. You know, the question I have, it, it, it's maybe not something that you could answer super concretely because it deals with something that's somewhat intangible, but still very impactful. And I think I'm basically asking about morale because with everything going on, with the pandemic, with the, the climate, with the economic situation. It's just, I see so many people, and understandably so, begin to slip into real despair and being discouraged and all those sorts of things. And it's the sort of mental and emotional state that I think can really disincline people from organizing or being involved in a movement because all the messaging that they're getting is telling them, well, it's too late. There's no point in doing anything now. You might as well just sit back and, and wait to die, basically. And so from your perspective as someone who's a longtime organizer, how do we combat the cynicism and the discouragement and, and just all of these things that, that people are dealing with in a very real way? Because things really are quite scary. I mean, I don't want to uh, pretend that it isn't. But how do you think we can help move folks from that? Because when we talk about poor and working people in this country, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of people that if they were able to be organized towards the same end, then this country, I think, would look completely different, right? And so it's just sort of like, I think a lot about how, how to combat that tendency to slip into despair, if you will, that 
you know, I think we're seeing more and more as the contradictions of capitalism intensify more and more. Maybe offer some things in that direction, but yeah, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation if I, I had a hundred percent answer to that. I wish I did, but I think it's absolutely crucial we think about it and talk about it because it is, you know, we're taught to be objects, not subjects. You know, it's, it's sort of the idea that, I mean, even just like sort of the role of politicians, like, you know, I would never become a politician. People say that all the time and I don't begrudge them about that, but it's sort of said in a way of sort of like the only people who really can engage on political issues in a way to make a change are politicians. I mean, we're really taught to be the whole election system to be passive observers of other people's actions um, and to be, in fact, skeptical of leaders, right? Like, you know, you don't know who you can trust. You don't know who you should believe. People are always scamming people, blah, 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 blah. Um, I say all that just to say, I think that, you know, we have huge cultural undercurrents that we are fighting against that make this very difficult. So I also don't think people should be too discouraged that there are a lot of people who seem discouraged, apolitical, unwilling to get involved and beaten down and just don't think they have the ability to make change, because that really ultimately is the what you get from every single possible thing. Even when you have something like Judas and the Black Messiah, and as you know very well, Sean, I quite like Judas and the Black Messiah. But I mean, in many ways, the sort of takeaway from that is no matter how good you are, you still can't succeed. And the forces against you are so powerful that will even co-op members of your own community in order to put you down. So I think that just even the sort of quote unquote more hopefully produced things often, you know, give off the same kind of uh, uh, air. You know, I mean, there's not a lot of movies out there about successful revolutions where people actually are able to start transforming their society. But I think from a practical sense, one thing we have to do is we have to strengthen our collectivity and we have to fight against alienation and atomization because, you know, the, the, the extreme isolation and alienation of capitalist society and the atomization into smaller and smaller sort of, you know, affinity groups based on, you know, more and more niche uh, hobbies or whatever. Not that there's anything wrong with any particular hobby or interest, but the driving of that as a way of social organization is designed to keep people divided, to keep them atomized, to keep them in small groups and keep them from coming together. I mean, I think that, you know, collectivity and collective action is the only way to actually push back against powerful forces. And that goes back for time immemorial. And I think just taking our conversations about the way things are, whether our conversations are ones of despair, of lack of hope, or whatever it may be, from an individual, and I by that includes social media, which I actually think is almost at this point a form of counterinsurgency, but we'll get back to that. Um, but, you know, whether it's sitting at home alone, sitting on Twitter, whatever it may be, all of that encourages people to move towards a sense of negativity, not a sense of positivity. I think moving more of those conversations into spheres of collectivity allow us to not just talk about things, but since we're engaging in a real human form, to really sort of put ourselves on the spot, and I think this is the second part of it, to challenge ourselves, what can we do to make a small change? There are a lot of things we can do that are big changes, but I don't think that's the best way to start in terms of addressing some of the facts that it seems like the big changes, um, even if we're advocating for big changes, what can we do in a small way to push that forward, I think has to be the way we end these conversations or turn these conversations and the role we as active, organized, conscious people have to play when people are saying these things to us is to turn it towards not what can we do to change everything tomorrow. It's an interesting conversation, one worth having, but also like, 
what can we do tomorrow that can put us in the right direction and give people the sense that they're agents, that they're subjects, that they're not, that they're not objects, they're not something to be worked upon, that you too are a leader and an active individual and what you do matters and what you do can count. Until we start to find collective ways to restore that hope, I think it will be very difficult to move past all of the things that you laid out there, Sean, because I think that so many things are arrayed against us. But that's partially why I think we have to move much more political discussion and activity off the Internet and off of social media and back into real life. I know that there's a lot of difficulties with the pandemic, but the reality is we already know this, that social media companies and the way they determine their algorithms – you know, have looked at how they can manipulate people's emotions. They certainly reward certain types of behavior. I think often negative behavior over positive behavior. They reward and they push conflict. And they, without a doubt, you know, I could say, okay, I'm looking at Sean's Twitter page and you're tweeting about something that's driving me crazy. And I could say, why is Sean always tweeting about this thing that's driving me crazy? And then I go look at your feed and I see you've actually tweeted about 15 other things that are totally unrelated to that. And to you, the thing or two that drove me crazy was just sort of a passing comment that you made. But the way Twitter does it, because this negative thing that you put out there, this hot take, and this is never you, Sean, so I'm just using it as an avatar, you know, is, is, is getting so much engagement that they just pump that into my feed, even though it's negative. But the positive thing that you tweeted that didn't get as much engagement because it was just sort of a nice generalized observation, never going to get pumped into my feed. So not only am I getting all this negative information, but then I have this distorted view of who you are and what you care about. And the reality is that they want to drive engagement. And before social media ever existed, any marketer and any advertiser would tell you this, that you know, drawing on hatred, on anger, on outrage, all those sorts of things, that's what drives people in a short, small way. And so that's what pushes engagements on social media. And that's what they're pushing is division and hatred and also these sort of parasocial relationships where you feel like you're getting a hit of dopamine because a lot of people are liking your thing and it makes you feel included and where you're able to meet people and talk to people, but you don't really know them and you're not really connected to them. And so I don't think that there's some like major plot of social media, but I just think that this is a side effect of the existence of social media in the context of capitalism, that it reinforces all of the negative things that we feel naturally because of how beaten down we become in our society. So I think there's many things we need to do, but the most important thing is to strengthen our collectivity and to move more of our discussions about the way the world is into our collective in-person or close to as in-person as we can kind of spaces where we can challenge ourselves to figure out how we make change and get out of this individualized, atomized existence, which is exactly where capitalism wants us to be, which is why there's a subculture that emerges around any possible little thing, whether it be a hobby, whether it be a lifestyle, quote unquote, whether it be a form of dress, whatever they can do to categorize you in a box, check it and get you to buy something after you check that box, they will do, even though it just makes us into smaller and smaller little units that identify with smaller and smaller groups of each other, rather than looking for broad commonalities between all of us, which, you know, whether you're into steampunk or, you know, sci-fi or hip hop or basketball or whatever, if you're an average, everyday working person, there's undoubtedly more that unites us than divides us, but they've created this space that somehow there's some huge difference because we dress a little different, we read a different book, we like a different movie or a different type of music, uh, and that's just not the case. Yeah, you know, Eugene, I think that we've seen the result 
of what you were just talking about, you know, focusing more on collective action and sustaining it, being consistent with it, being united in our organization and moving these conversations and our organization off of social media or at least not centering it entirely on social media. I think we've seen the success of that to a certain degree with the recent developments in two pretty high profile cases of police, racist police terrorism in Colorado with the cops and the, and the paramedics who were indicted on charges surrounding the killing of Elijah McClain and the former prosecutor in Georgia that has been indicted in the death of Ahmaud Arbery. I mean, I feel like those things wouldn't have happened if people hadn't done exactly what you just talked about we need to do over this past summer. And, and before then, and I think there was a lot of this on the ground organizing in these places long after the protests in the streets, the nationwide protests in the streets kind of receded a little bit. So I, I'm wondering how you're feeling about us being really careful and intentional and not letting these kinds of developments from that very important, pivotal struggle in the streets from last summer a fade away when they happen, because, you know, these were not things that were, you know, trumpeted by corporate media as like the main story. You know, you you have to be a consumer of media or news media pretty regularly to have found a lot of this, you know, some of this information. So, I mean, I wonder how you feel about us being careful that we we don't put all of our hopes into, you know, the system giving us what we want from these actions. but using these actions as kind of a point of optimism to look at what we can do when we do the things that you just talked about a few minutes ago. I agree with you 100%. I think these things are huge points of optimism, even if they're just small wins. Quite frankly, even if they're things that are completely cynical, I think anytime we can look and see, well, why did they do this? I mean, you think about the issue of the NBA Last year, with the, you know, where after they were in the bubble, it was like they turned the whole thing into like an ad for Black Lives Matter. Now, of course, the owners of the NBA and ESPN are not actually for, you know, even a modicum of racial equality. Quite frankly, especially when we're talking about the owners who are pretty much all you know right wing billionaires. So why would all of these major corporations all of a sudden feel like we have to do everything possible? to make people think we are in favor of Black Lives Matter. Well, there's only really one reason. They're worried that their brand is not, in fact, viable if they are not seen as being forthrightly for social justice. And in the case of the league itself, they're concerned they won't even be able to put a product on the court if they aren't seen to be for social justice. Now, we know a lot of it's cynical, a lot of it's fake. Almost all of it is motivated by an attempt to trick you about what they believe rather than tell you what they really believe. But to me, that's a huge statement that the largest brands, the most popular sport in the country, and really in the world in many ways, felt that they had no other choice in the midst of this mass uprising other than to at least pretend to take a pose of sympathy with that mass uprising. I mean, that speaks very loudly, I think. Because people ask brands and other people to do things all the time, right? People are always making some demand of this company, don't do this, don't do that, and they almost never do it. So when they do do it, it tells you that this is a powerful, powerful movement that can change things. And again, that we are subjects, not objects. And I think you're 100% right, the Ahmed Arbery piece, the uh, uh, Elijah McClain piece. I mean, the only time 
you ever see anything in terms of substantive change with policing is when people get completely outraged and start tearing stuff up and marching and protesting every day, which, in it, which is, you know, in and of itself a commentary on how undemocratic the country is. But beyond that, again, it's yet another example of how collective action can make change. And so even when we know things need to go further, that, you know, we're, there's an attempt to try to trick us, whatever these different pieces are, I think we have to continue, as you're saying, Jackie, to leverage these as points of optimism, points of hope, and just keep chopping away at this idea. If you get together and if you take action, you can change things. Doesn't mean that every single activity or every single action is going to do something, but it does talk about the underlying principle of the only way to challenge organized money and organized power of the elites is the organized power of the people. I think that that's been true, proven true time and time again, historically, contemporarily, whatever it is. But, you know, if NPR or CNN or MSNBC was reporting on the stuff that y'all are reporting on, on by any means necessary day in and day out in terms of broad social movements, I guarantee you more people will be out on the streets doing things because there's so much that happens. In fact, I think we undercount the amount of organizing, fantastic organizing that's going on in every nook and cranny of the United States day in and day out because it just never actually really gets that much coverage. You get a little bit here and there, but you just aren't hearing from the tenant organizers and the union organizers and the people fighting at line three and the people who are out there protesting like they will be tonight uh, in, in Washington, D.C. for the brother Antoine who was killed when he was, was, was shot uh, while sleeping. I mean, these sorts of folks who are out here doing this work, if it wasn't for the type of stuff that y'all are doing, for what we try to do at Breakthrough News, you would never really hear from them on a regular basis. But if people did, I think it would change things, which is why we need to use the moments when people are paying attention to hit these home truths over and over and over again, that if you do something, it does make a difference. You aren't an object. You don't just have to follow. You're a subject. You can act. You can lead. Absolutely. You don't just have to sit there and take it. You can get involved in organized action to make that change. Well, we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thank Eugene Perrier so much for joining us today. We're back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.